Thank you for listening to the audio podcast of the King's Crossing Church of Christ. To learn more or subscribe, please visit our website at kingscrossingcoc.com. It is really good to be with you today. Um, I would start on a personal note. Um, I had to make an unexpected uh, absence last Sunday because of the passing of my uh, grandmother uh, up in Nashville, Tennessee, where all my family is. And so uh, last weekend, we were there for her funeral. Uh, Quite a number of you have uh, either reached out by call or text or sent us cards, and uh, we really do appreciate your sympathy and your uh, kindness during uh, definitely a difficult uh, time in my family's life. Uh, It is a good day to be here. I would point out, if you haven't had a look at the front of your bulletin, uh, new classes, we're in a new quarter, and uh, Dr. Kevin Burr, our uh, discipleship minister, coordinates our classes, and we've got three really good options starting today. So as we wrap up here, as you think about where you're going to go to class, take a moment and figure out which of those options appeals to you most, and we hope you'll plan to jump in and participate and uh, be blessed by these uh, offerings that we have. This is July 4th, and this is a day that we are especially grateful for the opportunities of the nation that we live in. Uh, It is a good place to live. What's been interesting to me is that in recent times, if you hear anyone say something critical of the United States, it usually has something to do with the fact that how is there anyone in our nation who's still struggling or in poverty or in hard circumstances? That says a lot about the assumptions that have been built into us because of where we grew up. Because in fact, throughout human history and still throughout most of the world, the norm for most people is abject poverty. The question we should be asking so much of the time is, how in the world has one nation produced so much opportunity for so many? Uh, It is a a blessing to live in this country and to experience uh, all the blessings that we have here. So in fact, freedom is not the norm everywhere. Freedom is a gift, freedom is a privilege, and we are grateful to be here. I think there's some ways that our own independence, thinking about our own nation, sets us up well to reflect on a person in the story that we want to look at today. And as we get started, you're going to have to imagine a place that's very, very different than the one where you are right now. Not in a nation of privilege and safety, but in fact, we need to go out to the desert If you were to move out into the desert, there'd be no one for miles and miles, and then there was this one stream, because we're looking for someone, and we find her by this small stream in the desert, and she's by herself. This is a runaway slave from North Africa, a runaway slave from North Africa, She could hardly summon an army to help her fight for her independence, much less a militia or even a partner. She is entirely alone and has decided to run away. She became a slave when her owner had visited her home country. He left left there as a, a wealthy man, and she, in fact, was just treated like a bargaining chip. We want you to go and here have some slaves to go with you. So she was She was part of that group who went with this wealthy man. She'd been given to him, and in turn, he gave her to his wife to assist his wife. And even as she is now fleeing from her master and his wife, it's complicated because she's carrying her master's child. She's expecting. She's now pregnant. 
Her master's wife had treated her so harshly, she felt she had no choice but to run. She just had to get out of that situation. So again, her independence wasn't marked with a holiday or a battle or anything of that nature. She just had to run because she felt she had nowhere else to go. And so now she's here at this small stream beside this way in the wilderness where she has stopped to rest and to get a drink of water. So what was it that brought her to this place? This morning, we're continuing our study of Abraham. I have referred to Abraham as the quintessential late bloomer, the guy who didn't really do anything in his life of note until he was already 75 years old and went on to become one of the great heroes of our faith and an example to us in so many ways. And today's story is another example of how uh, people are just complicated. No one gets everything right. No one treats everyone well all the time. All of us have our foibles and our faults. And this, to me, is another difficult story in the life of Abraham. Of course, the person that I'm talking about today in Abraham and Sarah's mind was not the central player in the story, but God chose to give her special significance. I'm talking, of course, about Hagar, Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden. To bring us to where we find Hagar next to this stream in the desert there's a series of interactions that really led to her world being turned upside down. And it all started with some marital problems. It started with some marital problems. Now, even with no promise, it would be the case that Sarah in this culture certainly carried with her this lifelong burden of feeling like she wanted to give a child to her husband, but she had been unable to conceive. That would have been pressure for any woman in the ancient world who was barren, but especially in this case, they did have a promise from God. God told Abraham, I'm going to create this great nation through you, through your household. All peoples of the world will be blessed. We've talked some about how all this leads to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of so much of human history. But the central tension, in my opinion, the central tension in the story of Abraham is this tension of delay and waiting. God's made a promise. It's been a long time since he made the promise, and we're not getting any younger. Is God ever going to keep his promise and make good on his promise? And just as it is the case for us sometimes, when we start trying to invent our own solutions and work our ways around finding shortcuts to the things that only God can provide, Sarah made some decisions that led to some difficulty. Now, it was actually her intent to help things along, but instead she created massive conflict. Sarah's idea was this. She said, look, Abraham, God has promised that he's going to create this great nation through you, so it seems that I'm unable to conceive, but I have now this Egyptian handmaiden that we brought with us, Hagar, um, and so why don't you sleep with her, and if you can father a child through her, that child can be the source of this great nation. Now, that sounds strange to us for a number of reasons. Uh, in our nation, certainly at this point, we've all, over the centuries, worked very hard to move beyond slavery and continue in some ways to struggle with that legacy here. But slavery to us sounds rather strange. But beyond that, this custom in the ancient world of allowing a servant to bear the child of the master's wife, not something that would be common to us, but in an ancient culture, where childbearing, frankly, was very dangerous, 
Partly for that reason, polygamy was something that was more normal because a lot of women did die giving birth. This becomes something of an option that was heard of, was thought of, and it could be the custom that if a child was born through the slave woman, that he could be raised as if he were the legitimate heir to the head of the household. Now, in this situation, Sarah went to Abraham and asked her husband's opinion. What would you think about sleeping with Hagar? So she got his input, and he takes some time to kind of let her do what she wants. Well, sure, if that's what you think I ought to do. So Abraham and Sarah are interested in each other's opinion. I notice here that no one ever bothered to ask Hagar what she wanted. No one asked her if she wanted to sleep with her master or bear his child. We know he is at this point, you know, well, well into his 80s. She was likely a teenager, However that encounter went, she's not a person in a position of power. That is what happened. Abraham slept with her. She got pregnant. And that leads to the next difficult phase in this situation, namely the tension that arose between Hagar and Sarah. Now, it's hard to know exactly what to do with this text, but it says that once Hagar knew that she was pregnant, she despised Sarah. We could take that in a few different ways. Perhaps this is a problem of arrogance, where even though you're my master and even though you're his wife, I'm the one who could get pregnant. Maybe she was showing some arrogance in her attitude towards Sarah, kind of looking down her nose at her, that now I'm going to be bearing this child when you couldn't. So maybe it's arrogance. Perhaps Sarah is perceiving her as a slave who has forgotten what her place is, as the world might would say it. Now, it is the case that uh, in the ancient world, this did have precedent. In fact, if you've ever heard of the Law Code of Hammurabi, a very famous ancient law code, um, there is precedent for this kind of situation built into Hammurabi's law, where if someone was unable to conceive and the husband slept with the slave, functionally that elevated the slave to the status of the wife. So there are some ways in which she would have been elevated by being able to conceive and get pregnant. Maybe Sarah was concerned at the attitude she was showing and thinking that now she had more status than Sarah wanted her to. Perhaps when it says that she despised Sarah, it was just a genuine resentment for being put in this situation. I didn't get a choice in this. I didn't want to be in this situation. It wasn't my decision to sleep with this guy. You're the one that insisted that I do this. And again, pregnancy, childbearing, very dangerous in the ancient world. How could you make me do this? I don't know which of those options it was. All I know is that it says there was definite tension between Hagar and Sarah once Hagar was expecting. Genesis chapter 16 tells what happens next in verse 5. Then Sarai said to Abram, listen to this, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. How's that for a line? You're responsible for this. It was her idea, I'd like to point out. You're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms. See, it's all in your hands. And now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me, which is a way of saying, none of this is my fault. This is all in God's hands, but this is all your fault. Look at this terrible situation we're in. Abram responds in kind and says, your slave is in your hands. She says, she's in your arms. He says, no, this is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. The next sentence to me 
is a really loaded sentence that it would be easy to move past far too quickly. It just says, then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. How long did that go on? I don't know. How long did this last? Was this a period of hours, days, weeks? We know this all happened within the scope of the pregnancy, so not more than nine months, but Sarai begins to mistreat her handmaiden in response to this tension because she could. And so Sarah has said, may the Lord judge, this is out of my hands. Abram says, well, she's your slave. You do with her what you want to do. And I read this story and I think, poor Hagar, there's no one, there's no one to be her advocate. She has no one to keep Sarah in check And in this story, you might notice as you read through the text, not once do Abram or Sarah ever refer to her by her name. She's only referred to as the slave, the handmaiden, the assistant. Her life had become unbearable, and she at some point decided that the risk of running away on her own was a better option than staying put where she was. And so she ran away. At this point in the story, I wonder how you might try and describe Hagar. If someone were to ask you, tell me about Hagar and what she was and who she was, you could apply a number of thoughts to this. You could say she was a slave. She is now a homeless person living in poverty. She's a person exploited sexually and economically, perhaps a victim of domestic abuse, a soon-to-be single parent. There's a lot of titles you could apply to her, but can you imagine just how lost she must have felt out there in the desert, pregnant by herself, barely finding a source of water? At this point in the story where we're looking for an advocate, we're looking for a champion or someone who cares, this is where God shows up. God sends the angel of the Lord, his envoy, his messenger, and he's pulled back the curtain, and we get to see what God is up to in the life of a person like Hagar. And I have to tell you, this portrait touches me because Jesus later told a story about the good shepherd who would leave the 99 to go and search for the one. Hagar's feeling forgotten, but in this story that God is telling, We set Abram and Sarah to the side, and God goes looking for Hagar. Good to know that she wasn't forgotten. She's carrying Abram's child, and in God's mind, she is still still part of this story. It is a strange twist for us. We can only really appreciate through Christian eyes how it really was the case that God will tell her, you want to go back to this situation as bad as it is because... It is somehow better to be a low-standing person in the household of God than it is to be the king anywhere else. Being connected to what God was going to do through the family of Abraham is the greatest story the world has ever known, the most important experience that the world has ever had. Somehow, it was better to be a low-standing person in the story of Abraham's family than it was to be back at home in Egypt. And so the angel of the Lord went searching for her, and it found her there by the stream. In verse 9, it says, Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. 
now she has a promise of her own. It wasn't just Abraham living in the promise. It was now Hagar who also received a promise. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you're now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. So there's a couple of different tensions involved in what's going on here. The first, we might would say, is kind of a horizontal tension. And what I mean by that is, living in context of a promise from God, one of the things that Abram would be tempted to do would be to start looking to his left and his right rather than looking up for God to fulfill his promise. Now that Sarah has taken matters into her own hands and now that Hagar is expecting Abram's child, the temptation for Abram would be to forget about God's promise for that child through Sarah and simply to focus on Ishmael and to move on in this situation. Um, So despite what sympathy, and I'll tell you, this is a story, I feel deep sympathy for Hagar. Scripture insists that there is a bigger situation going on than merely her misfortune in pregnancy, and that is, right now, if Abram gives up on the promise and just focuses on Ishmael, then everything God was going to do through his line is now in jeopardy. It really matters that Abram's line is intact because this is the family through whom Jesus comes into the world. So this question of a legitimate heir is something that is very important in Scripture's mind. We can't be born again by our own means. We can only be born again through the promise that is from God. So Paul reflects on this situation, and I'll confess This is not my favorite passage of New Testament Scripture, but nonetheless, I want to interact with it because Paul talks about Sarah and Hagar, and his reflection leans very heavily into the importance of God's promise and being born from above. He says in Galatians 4, "'Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons.'" one by the slave woman that he compares to the law, and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of the divine promise. Again, in Paul's mind, the promise is playing very prominently here. Skipping down a few verses, he says in verse 28, "'Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise.'" At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. He's talking about the tension between the Jews wanting to hang on to the law and the Christians trying to be free. And he's referencing a story later in Abraham's life where it was the case that Ishmael started bullying Isaac, and that became another source of tension. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not the children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Now, I tell you, if I were going to do what Paul just did and turn it in in a paper at my seminary, I don't think they would give me a high grade on it. I do think what he's doing here is a bit of a stretch with this story to make an allegorical point about the importance of the divine promise. He says, what God is going to accomplish through his promise in the world is always central to the story and central to our salvation. 
When Jesus says you must be born again, that word again means you must be born from on high. It is a result of a divine promise that we experience a divine rebirth. The only way to share in God's inheritance is to be born again from above. This is all concerned with that horizontal dimension that we might be tempted in life to let go of God's promise and look to whatever we ourselves can accomplish to sort of bring about our salvation, our prosperity, or whatever it is. In Scripture's mind, that is a huge danger to this story. The promise could be in jeopardy. But then, encouragingly, there is also this vertical dimension where you might look at God's relationship to Abraham's family and say, is it the case that Abraham's family are the only people in the world for some reason that God cares about? Is everyone else just of no significance to God? Is it just about Abraham that God has elected and selected and he's just gonna do good things for his family and the rest of us don't really matter if we're not part of that lineage? Encouragingly, we see that God has great concern for all the people who are his children, all the people in the world. Abraham hasn't shown any concern for Hagar in this story. He said, you're a slave, you do what you want. Sarah has been outright hostile to her, but God has treated her tenderly. Again, as you read this story, notice the angel of the Lord is the first person in this entire story to refer to Hagar by her name. To God, she wasn't the slave girl. She was Hagar. She had a place in God's heart and in God's mind. And she's given a wonderful promise from God. Not only are you going to survive this, to speak of her generations coming in the future, this means not only will you survive, your child will survive, he'll be healthy, he'll even thrive. Now, it sounds a bit harsh to say he's going to be like this wild donkey of a person and there's going to be a lot of tension, but let's face it. He's not even born yet, and look at all the tension that already surrounds him. It wasn't necessarily his choosing. It's just the world he was born into. From the day he arrived, a lot of the people in his life didn't want him there. He was going to spend his life in conflict, but the message of him being able to push back is, don't worry, Hagar. It's going to be hard. He's going to be treated harshly, but he's going to dish it right back. He's going to be a strong and resilient person. So she's given this promise God knows her by name. But then Hagar uh, has a couple of unusual things happen in this story. I would also point out here, this is the first time in Scripture that a child is named before it is born. For very, very special people in the world, God would show up and say, his name will be John. You're going to call him Jesus. But here, for the first time, God shows up to an expecting woman and says, it's going to be a son, and you're going to name him Ishmael. Ishmael means something like, may God listen. It's as if every time she said her son's name, she was uttering a prayer. Ishmael, may God listen. May God listen. It's so fitting for her circumstances, as she must have been suffering and crying out, May God listen. Does anybody care about us? God does. Is anybody listening to us at all? God is. When I cry out to God, I have a voice, regardless of what happens to me back at home. In response to this, Hagar does something surprising in that she kind of puts on a theologian hat and something no one else has done before also, she gives God a name. You haven't seen anyone else do that in Scripture. 
God shows up, gives her a promise, knows her by name, and she refers to God as Lahai Roy. It's a bit hard to translate, but it means something like the God who sees me. She says, you are Lahai Roy. You are the God who sees me. And she goes and comments and says, I have now seen the one who sees me. In dealing with the angel of the Lord, I have seen the one who sees me. A fascinating side detail about that name to me is that throughout Scripture, that name is not given any real special prominence. She refers to God as Lahai Roy, and we don't see that term used again anywhere else. But I kind of like this thought that when you have a special connection with God, even if you got to the point of having a special title that you like to use in referring to God, whether you think of him mostly as Father or Lord or Savior or Master or whatever name you might attribute to God, I like to think that sometimes you get to have little special things just between you and God. So maybe she's the only one that ever really liked this name for God, but God honored her by keeping that here in the Word for us to see to be heard, and to be seen. Only when you've really felt ignored in your life can you appreciate the value of feeling seen and feeling heard. In recent studies in the life of Abraham, Hagar has taken on great significance. Uh, Hagar has started to loom very large in the minds of people who experience hardship. You, could, you might find yourself in a variety of categories, and you could look to Hagar as a person for encouragement. So speaking about those who are in slavery, if you're a person in poverty, people who feel like a, a minority, those who've been sexually or economically exploited, victims of abuse, single parents, or even those who've had some sort of a special movement of God in their life that gave you a special sense of connection with God. All such people can look to Hagar as a source of encouragement. A challenge to me of this story is that I wish God would just swoop in and make it all better, don't you? I wish that God would just swoop in and fix everything and make everybody get along, but God doesn't force us to do anything against our own will. To whatever extent we honor God, it's because we choose to honor God. And here the angel says to Hagar, you need to stay connected to this family. Go back to your mistress, Sarah. Later, when Paul is dealing with a different runaway slave named Onesimus, he says to Onesimus, it's time to go back to your master, Philemon. It is not always the case that God just liberates us from our circumstances the way that we wish he would, but it is great to know that even in our hardships, God has not abandoned us. Like Hagar you are seen, you are heard, and the thing to do is to wait for the Lord and don't give up. To wait for the Lord and don't give up. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on your spouse. Don't give up on your children. Don't give up on the efforts you've made to do the right thing, even if it seems that they're not producing what you want or you felt defeated along the way. Don't give up, even if it feels like you have to stand by yourself. It's good to know that there is a place for you in God's story, too. There's a place for all of us. As you reflect on your own life this morning, I wonder if in some way Hagar is a person that you could relate to, where you have been going through a season of struggle and wilderness, trying to find your way to God, wondering if you're being seen or heard or acknowledged. I think Hagar would say, don't give up. 
He is the God who sees you. He is the God who hears you. Uh, one of the things that we do every week is that we have a time where I'll extend this invitation, and if for some reason you could use encouragement or prayer or you want to respond in baptism or a variety of ways uh, to, to the gospel this morning, we set this time aside where that can happen. But I want to point out also, we do want all of you to feel like you are seen and heard. And so whether you wanted to come to the front or it is also the case, we're going to have our elders positioned just throughout the room. So maybe it's not something you need to share with everyone, but you would like to talk to one of our shepherds and let them see you and hear you and say a special prayer with you for what you're struggling with this morning. Uh, whatever your needs are, we invite you to respond however suits you as together we stand and sing.